Good morning and happy Sabbath. It's my pleasure to be here. It's good to come back to be with friends, meet some new ones as well. I was very blessed last night. What about you? And I was just amazed to see how the Holy Spirit just blended our two messages. Before we begin, I'd like to ask him to be with us one more time. Please bow your heads as I kneel. Loving Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be here your Sabbath day. And as we talk about something very serious about the judgment, and the only question you will ask of each one of us, I pray that you, the judge of all the earth, would be here right now. That you would not only be among us, but within us. I pray, Lord, that I may be hidden behind the cross of Jesus, that I may not speak my own words, but I may speak yours. Please use me, Lord, in spite of myself, my weak and Christ-like self. And I just pray that every person here would see you today and hear exactly what they need to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Some of you may know it by memory. I liked how Matt shared that he will memorize a couple of verses in each of his sermons. Does anyone know what that says without looking at it? The Sermon on the Mount? Go ahead. Therefore, be therefore, what? Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, very interesting. That's kind of a summary type of verse with what Jesus has presented. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be perfect? And what is the question that God is going to ask you in the judgment? I hope that's got your brain moving right now. Perhaps some of you are thinking... Now, many of us here are Seventh-day Adventists. So what do we believe is going to be the final issue at the end of time? What's going to be the the two choices you're going to have to make? Worship God or... And what is going to be the sign or seal of that? Yeah, so we believe that the end of time is going to be the Sabbath, right? Now, is that the question God is going to ask you in the judgment? It's not. And I'll tell you why that can't be the question, because who was the person most remembered for the Reformation? The Great Reformation, Europe. Martin Luther, right? So Martin Luther came up with the principles of what? Protestantism, sure. Now, did Martin Luther keep the Sabbath? No, he didn't. So that can't be the question, right? At least not at the end of time. You know, I became an Adventist when I was a junior in college. And one thing I enjoyed about studying with the Adventists more than other denominations, and I even, I've studied Buddhism, Shintoism, Taoism, Hinduism, stuff like that. I studied with the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the whole, everybody. And the majority of religions, when you talk to them, they say you should join our church because we're the only ones that are, I heard both, saved or right. You know what I really liked about the Adventists? 
Is that our position? No. I asked them, I said, so, so tell me, are you guys the only ones that are saved? They said, no. And I said, what? In fact, the majority of the people that are saved aren't Adventists. And I was just like, talk about humility. Great Controversy 382. And in what religious bodies are the greater part of the followers of Christ now to be found? Without doubt, in the various churches professing Protestant faith. Various churches. Did you notice that? This is Third Selected Messages 386. God has children, many of them, in the Protestant churches and a large number in the Catholic churches who are more true to obey the light and to do the very best of their knowledge than a large number among the Sabbath-keeping Adventists who do not walk in the light. That's from our own writings. Did you know that? That was so beautiful. I was like, wow, you guys don't think you are like the only one saved? Tell me more. And of course, the Bible brings out something even further than that. But perhaps the question at the end of time, has anyone ever heard a story where there's a, a rich art collector and he has all these valuable works of art and he dies and he's going to auction them all off? Does anyone remember this story? And then there's, there's, what's the first piece they auction off? A picture of who? His son, right? And what's the whole point of that story? The person who bids for the son and gets him gets what? He gets everything. So, so is the question at the end of time, do you know Jesus? Maybe is that the question? I heard amens. I heard several amens. Is it? Let me read you another passage. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Now, ultimately, it is Jesus that is the author, the finisher of our faith. He is the only reason any of us will be saved, whether before Christ or after Christ. But look at this passage, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. When the Gentiles, which have not what? The law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written where? In their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when what? God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. I'm going to read you a very intriguing passage. Christ Object Lessons, page 384. Well, I'll skip down a little bit. Let's go to Christ Object Lessons 3. Yeah, it's 384. In the depths, those in the depths of heathenism. What's heathenism? Paganism without God, something like that. In the depths of heathenism, men who have had no knowledge of the written law of God, who have never even heard the name of Christ. Interesting. And it show, there's a little bit more that I'm going to edit out. I'll save that and share it with you later. Their acts show the working of divine power. The Holy Spirit has implanted the grace of Christ in the heart of the savage, quickening his sympathies contrary to his nature, contrary to his education. The, quote, light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, John 1, 9, is shining in his soul, and this light, if heeded, will guide his feet to the kingdom of God. That's powerful, isn't it? 
both the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy tell us that there are going to be a few people, not the majority, but a few people who are going to see God without you and I. And they're going to come to know Him without even realizing that it's Jesus. We're told there are people going to be in heaven who don't even know the name of Jesus. They're going to be surprised when they look up in the judgment and God says that they're saved. So that's not the question. I'm sure many of you have hopefully got it by now. I think some of you have heard me present before, so I'm pretty sure some of you have it. I'm going to read you some passages here, and I'm not going to tell you where they're from, and see if you can figure it out. Christ represented the decision of the judgment as turning on one point. Our eternal destiny will be determined by... Here's another passage. Christ's rule of life by which every one of us must stand or fall in the judgment is... And here's an interesting one from Christ's Object Lessons. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the three angels' message. Wouldn't that be perfect to put right in there? I mean, listen. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is... It's not the three angels' message. Wow. I'll finish that quote is a revelation of God's character of love. The children of God are to manifest His glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. You all know the parable, but how is it that we miss that this is the question that God is going to ask us at the end of time? Matthew chapter 25, you know the parable. You can look around verses 34 and onward. And while you're contemplating that, I'm going to fill in these quotes for you. The first one is Desire of Ages 637. Christ on the Mount of Olives pictured to his disciples the scene of the great judgment day. And he represented its decision as turning on one point. How many? One. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes. And their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor and suffering. Powerful. Powerful. Desire of Ages 640. Christ's rule of life by which every one of us, how many of us? Every one of us must stand or fall in the judgment. Is whatsoever you would that men should do to you do you even so to them? What's that called? The golden rule. Wow, is it really that simple? Is it really just one question? It really is. I'm going to share some experience that I've had. I'm actually glad that uh, TJ and, and Alfred were here, both aspiring emergency medicine physicians, hopefully next year. And I'm going to share with you what my residents and medical students all love. Do you think they enjoy seeing a sprained ankle? Is that what you want to see, TJ? No. How about a cough and a cold? Runny nose. 
Isn't that what you live for, TJ? Come on. What do you think they want to see? Why do you think they like trauma so much? Crack them open, Riesenberger. Thorchotomy. Full arrest. Shock him. They want the gore. They want the deadly diagnoses, right? Those fatal things. The thing where the arm is like turned at angles that it shouldn't be able to go, right? Now, do we like that because we like gore and blood and guts? No, that's not the case. But we want to intervene when it's going to make a difference, right? When someone's dying, we want to be there to help them to save them, right? Not just physically, but spiritually. So the medical students and residents tend to avoid the things that are not so deadly in the chart, I notice. And they'll pick up, ooh, overdose. That sounds good. Oh, snake bite. Yay. You know? Oh, wow. Chemical poisoning. So those are the types of things that they enjoy. And, and honestly, I probably enjoy them too, myself, to a, a lesser or greater degree. But I'm going to share with you something that is highly deadly. In fact, it's the number one killer among some age groups and demographics. And not only is it deadly, but it is so serious that at least in this country, if I diagnose you as having it, I can force you to take the treatment. Do you know that? I can even force you to stay in the hospital and take the treatment. I can send the police to your house or paramedics or both and have them four-point restraint you and bring you in. It's that serious. It's that deadly. But not in all countries are you allowed to force people against their wills to take treatment for this disease. The United States has decided for the welfare of its citizens it is better to force it on you. Now, I remember I was in the emergency room and I was seeing a lady and she was from Japan and I did a physical examination and a history and just after that, with no lab tests, no x-rays, no CT, I determined that she had this very serious and fatal disease. And so I shared with her my plan as far as the treatment And she said, no, I don't think I want to take that. And I shared with her that she would probably be admitted to the hospital. She said, well, I don't want to be admitted to the hospital. I want to go home. And I said, I'm I'm sorry. I don't think you understand, ma'am. You you will be staying and taking this treatment. She says, you can't do that. That's illegal. You can't force me to do anything. I know my rights. I said, well, as a matter of fact, in this case, you're wrong. In your country, that may be legal, but not in mine. And you're going to be staying here. And she was screaming. She was upset. But she ended up staying against her will. Now, I can tell you, this disease is not only deadly, but it's common. 10% of men will come down with it sometime in their life. And 20% of women 
So it's deadly. It's common. Why don't my residents like it? Because this is something they'll pick up the chart and I'll watch them and they'll go. Kind of sneak away from the chart, maybe roll their eyes a little bit. I've heard people talk to patients who have this actually in church. And they'll say, brother, have you been having your devotions every day? And I've heard one person say, sister, have you given up the dairy? This is serious. This is the advice given to these people. And what I'm going to tell you is kind of a hypothetical situation. Let's say you, TJ, as a budding ER doctor, the triage nurse slips you a note from a patient that they found scribbled out in the room. It says, Dear Dr. TJ, please, I feel so sad, so distressed. I feel depressed to the point of dying. This disease is depression. Would you take that note seriously, TJ? What do you think your recommendation would be? Absolutely. Because if you send them home, what may happen? Absolutely. They may sort it out themselves. But I want you to remember what was written in that note and turn to Matthew 26, verse 38. Turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38. Then said he, who's he? Jesus. Did Jesus ever commit sin? No. Listen to this. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Even what? Unto death. Does Jesus know what it's like to be depressed? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Does he understand when you can't see past the clouds? Yes, he does. And what did he ask his disciples to do for him? Could you give me some tips on my devotional life, Peter? Maybe make some modifications to my diet, John? What did he ask them to do? Just be with me. And I can tell you that the way you can fulfill God's law to your friends who are depressed is not to be like Job's friends and say, Job, what's wrong with you? Sometimes all you need to do is be with them. You don't even need to say anything, right? I've always noticed that uh, we as guys are always ready to fix the problem. And our girlfriends or wives will say, oh, you know, I had such a bad day. Oh, let me go call your boss. Oh, don't do that. No. They just want us to listen and to be there. That's all Jesus wanted. He said, just, just watch with me. He didn't even say to come with me. He just said, you know, stay over here. Pray for me. Watch for me. Does Jesus understand? Yes, he does. And I hope that you can remember that. I had a friend of mine who was actually organizing a mission trip I went on recently. 
And he calls me up and he said, Tim, I don't think I'm going to go on the mission trip. I said, what do you mean? You organized it. You've got to be there. You're part of the team. This person was a professional, had gone to school here. And they said, Tim, I'm so depressed. I'm so anxious. I don't think I can make it. I'm not sleeping at night. I'm having recurrent thoughts. I don't think I'm going to go. And I told him, I said, you get on the phone to me anytime you need me to pray. I got them a book by a colleague of mine, Neil Nedley's book, Depression the Way Out. And I bought them two boxes of uplift bars and sent them with him. (laughs) And by the time the mission trip came around, he went and he said, Tim, I feel fine. No problems at all. I didn't ask him how his devotional life was. I didn't tell him he needed to pray more. I prayed with him. I didn't tell him he needed to change this or that. I gave him. I bought him stuff that he needed. They're actually pretty good, by the way. I tried one. (laughs) That's how you can help. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed very much as a student here at Loma Linda was potluck or getting invited home for lunch. How many of you like that as a student? Sure, of course, especially the guys that are single. It's always nice. You don't have to cook. And I can tell you that oftentimes, and I don't know why, I'm not Korean, but I don't know, ever since I was in pre-med, I've been hanging around a lot of Korean friends and Korean churches. And there's something amazing. I would find myself, even when I was away at rotations for emergency medicine, I, would, I was in South Carolina one time, and I looked at different churches, and I thought, oh, here's a Korean church. I might as well go to a Korean church. That's always fun. I feel at home there. And I can tell you that the Korean culture has an amazing way. Within just a few seconds, they can figure out where you've gone to school, what you do for work, and whether or not you're single. And that's the moms that are doing that. I remember going through line and this dear woman, she was saying, do you like Korean food? Here's my daughter's cell phone. (laughs) And she was handing it out. I always had an invitation for lunch all through school. But there are some people who didn't. I can tell you, there was a friend of mine when I was in college. She told me she had never been invited home to lunch ever by someone at church. She had very rarely been invited to come to someone's home and was very seldom included in outings with the church. She was a single mom. And it's a very different story after the church service for her than for me. And many times in life, we take certain sins and we tend to put greater severity on them than others. And it's true. There are some sins that are more serious to God than to other, than others. But I can tell you that sin or not, that person is still your brother and sister. And they want to hang out with people too. 
I had people sit me down and say, Tim, I can't invite her to my home. That's a threat to my marriage. I can't invite that woman near us. She's a single mom. Maybe. But she needs people too. She needs friends too. What do you do with the people who are divorced? Who are those single parents? Or maybe homosexual? Those things that are so taboo that we avoid. Again, the answer you need to come up with is not, are they to blame? But did Christ die for them? And the answer is yes in all the situations. You know, I remember there was a girl that came in the ER. And you know, as an ER physician, you tend to follow the crowds. You tend to keep your eyes on the bulk of where your staff and personnel are going. And I remember this patient came in, and it's like half of my staff went over to room 20. And I'm like, so I walk over there, and they're bustling and hustling, bustling, putting an IV in, the social workers out here, the nurse, and several techs and stuff, and... All of a sudden, everyone leaves. And I'm like, wow, I guess, I guess the major trauma is fixed or whatever it is in here. And I walked in and I found out it was actually a woman who had been raped. And as I began to talk to her, I tried to figure out why everyone was so concerned and then suddenly, gone. I talked to her and she said she had been raped at gunpoint. And I said, well, what, what had you been doing at the time? Where were you? She's like, well, I was working. And I said, well, where were you working? And she said, on the corner of 5th and Johnson. You see, when my nurses found out that this woman who had been raped was a prostitute, all their compassion vanished, disappeared. But I began to ask her a little bit more of the story. She had three kids. She was 20. And she was working to pay her way through dental hygiene school. And to feed her kids. To stay off of welfare. Did I still tell her the same thing I tell everyone in that situation? Sure. I said, you've got to get out of this line of work. You may be killed next time. Our social work can help get you resources, and it's okay to ask for help. Why did our sympathies vanish all of a sudden? Because we felt that somehow her suffering and her condition was brought on by herself. But you know, the Bible says that all we, like sheep, have gone astray, doesn't it? We have turned everyone to his own way, haven't we? Not just some of us, all of us. All of us need compassion and mercy. Do you know what people remember about a sermon or presentation or even a lecture? Do you know what they tend to remember? They tend to remember the thing, the blank and the blank of the lecture. Do you know what it is? The beginning and the end. That's true. What's in the middle is difficult. That's why they make class sizes 50 minutes. 
with 10-minute breaks. Do you know what the first three words of the Conflict of the Ages series are? It's the same as the last three words. I'll give you a hint. God is love. Do you think that's a coincidence? I think not. It's the first thing in the Conflict of the Ages series, and it's the last thing you'll read as well. God is love. Did you know that when I was at San Francisco General, we were responsible for caring for approximately 50,000 homeless people just in the city of San Francisco. And when you think of the word homeless, I'm so glad, Matt, that you brought up that illustration of that homeless guy at the end. The most often word that comes to mind is a word that rhymes with AZ. Do you know what that is? Yes, but did you know what's a more accurate word? Yes, very good. TJ, you definitely passed that rotation. Are there some that are lazy? Yes, there are. I can tell you there are more that are crazy. Have you ever seen people that are homeless walking down the street talking to themselves? Have you ever seen that? Who's seen that? Do you know why they're talking to themselves? Because someone's talking to them in their head. They're hearing a voice. You probably would do the same thing too. Greater than 50% of people that are homeless have an actual psychiatric diagnosis. Did you know that? There's a reason why they're homeless. Have any of you been homeless before? One person only. You know, I was talking to my friend Dave Smith. There was a time when I was doing pre-med at Andrews. And I was so tight on my budget. Dave, do you remember how much I spent on food a month? Tell me. I spent $50 a month on food. I survived... Because of the pastor's wives at Andrews. What they would do is they would go to the store and they would collect all the stuff that was almost expired. And they would give it away at really cheap prices. I can tell you I know what it's like to be hungry. We were poor when I was young. And my mom was working. She was a full-time mom with three kids, single mom. And I can tell you... That when you're doing that and you're working 14 hours a day, you have to delegate the older kids to do what? Take care of the younger kids. Exactly. I was cooking when I was six, seven. But what can you cook at six and seven? Exactly, like a boxed meal or something like that. My mom got a deal one time. She got a huge case. Does anyone remember those uh, macaroni and cheese dinners? They were like 25 cents and where it didn't say real cheese on it, it had this big smiley face on it to kind of cover up the fact that it wasn't even cheese at all. She got a big case of those and I remember making those for my sister and my brother and we ate macaroni and cheese for one month every meal. Straight. I don't like macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I remember when I was young too, my, my mom was struggling, doing her best with hardly any support. And we would move around. It was very strange. We would move around every month 
And I said, well, mom, where are we going? We're going to live with auntie. In the Asian culture, it's auntie or uncle, right? And so we didn't have a great time. We'd play with their kids and then we'd move somewhere else. Well, we're going to go live with uncle now. Oh, okay. And we didn't even think about it. Later, I realized that we were actually homeless for that year. And what my mom was doing was saving up $10,000 to put down on a house. Just so she could escape this cycle of rent and having to live paycheck to paycheck. I haven't been that badly homeless. But I know what it's like somewhat. Many of us don't understand what it's like. I can tell you, I had a guy come in one time. I was at San Francisco General. Homeless guy. Didn't look any different from any other homeless guy. But I talked to him for a while. I came to find out he at one point was the most successful photographer in San Francisco. And I, I realized when I saw his name, I said, what happened to you? He was like, let me tell you. It started when I got divorced from my wife. I was so sad. I started drinking and drinking. And I was losing my contracts. I was failing at my work. I lost my house. I lost my car. I got into drugs. And he just spiraled downward. He said, I didn't have many friends. Because I had been so busy before as a photographer. And there was no one to support me. To turn me back from the cycle I had come down from losing my wife. Sometimes there's a story behind why someone's homeless. You know, I had a friend of mine. Who knows Erdal? Does anyone know Erdal Pascu? Sure. She called me up and left me a message recently. She's like, Tim, uh, Chris and I are wondering if you can tell us what's in your homeless packets. Because we remember you used to give those out. And I told her. And I'm like Matt. I don't give out money. But I'll give out a Steps to Christ. And in my county, you can actually dial 211 from any payphone, and it'll connect you with all the resources and a social worker. You can get online with a social worker. And I'll usually give them some sort of non-perishable food. But I think Matt said it very well. Is the best thing you can give someone who's homeless is just human dignity. Talk to them. You know, there's no one who looks them in the eye hardly during the day. So you can do a lot just by treating them like they're human. You know, when I lived overseas for a year, it was the first time where people actually came to my door and knocked on my door asking for money. <laughs> that's the first time that's ever happened. And I said, okay. Um, these two little boys came and I said, well, you guys can sort beans for me. So I paid them a, a reasonable wage per hour to sort beans because where I was at, when you bought beans, they all had rocks in them. That's right. I had another lady come who wanted money and I had her iron my shirts and they were happy to do that. And it saved me some time as well. But I can tell you one of the most vivid things I can remember, which is something I think that we are totally missing the boat at. And many of us are going to be lost in the judgment as a result of this is a situation that happened to me at Kaiser when I was a resident. Room nine, another patient. Oh, why do they keep sending us all these beached whales? 
The charge nurse comes up to me. Do you have the pleasure of the big boy in nine? I said, yes, it's my room. And I walked over to the room, started going through the chart. And I just hear the attending and the charge nurse just going on and on and on. And it was a big guy. He was over 500 pounds. He came in with abdominal pain. And what's the most common test we're going to do for abdominal pain, you think? CT, sure. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with getting a CT on someone who's well over 500 pounds. And what's that? They won't fit in the little donut. Or if it's an open CT, what's the problem? They're too heavy. They're too heavy. Did you know that I called UC Davis? And you know what I was calling them for? They have a CT scanner. Did you know that? Do you know what the weight limit on their CT scanner is? It's several tons. Because what do you think they use it for? The animals, that's right. So here I am getting a consult from UC Davis on using their CT scanner for elephants for this man. Do you think he needs to have anyone tell him that he's fat? He knows. I'm sitting here talking, well, Mr. Smith, I talked to UC Davis about using their CT scanner. And they said uh, just because of the risk of getting a disease, you know, that an animal might have had in there, we, we can't do that. So we're going to have to uh, skip that. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of good tests to do that. Our ultrasound beam actually can't see anything because uh, there's too much between it and your organs. So we ended up admitting that guy. But all through this time, one of my attending physicians was just going over and over. They're like, this is the third one over 500 pounds today. And this is the only time I openly rebuked one of my attending physicians, one of my professors in my life. I turned around and I said to him, Dr. So-and-so, if that guy were your brother, would you be saying that right now? And he said, well, excuse me, Father Tim. And I turned back to the chart and I said, and as far as I'm concerned, he is my brother. You know, it's one thing to tell someone that they're overweight. And I can tell you, one of the food service directors at one of the hospitals I interned at was very overweight. But what people didn't know is that I was up at 5 a.m. with that man every morning walking. I saw that man struggling to get that weight off, trying his best. It's one thing to tell someone they have a problem. It's another thing to spend time and effort to help them. And you know, Matt was asking a very interesting question yesterday. He was saying that as he went out of church after that great sermon, he couldn't understand why everyone passed that homeless guy. But I know why. It's exactly the reason why we miss the point about these things that I'm mentioning. Why we treat people so poorly. And it's not that we treat the people we like poorly. It's just certain sections of society. The reason is, so simply, is that we don't understand who that person is. Because really, in the parable, who is that person? 
Yes, it's Jesus. But I'm going to share with you that person is not only Jesus, but someone else to us as well. You know, I woke up a little too early today. Do any of you ever wake up early? The days that you're going to speak and you're like, God, please, I need a good night's sleep. Thank you. And you wake up and it's 2.20. Does that ever happen to any of you? And you can't get to sleep? But you know, I praise the Lord because he told me to share a very personal story about myself that actually just happened yesterday that illustrates this point. How many of you have trouble keeping up with all your friends? I know that I do. I was talking to Dave Smith good friend of mine and I can tell you that I praise the Lord for what God is doing in Dave's life but I'm going to also tell you something else that it that it wasn't always that rosy for Dave and I remember telling Dave and reminiscing about those times that were rough for him and I said Dave forgive me for not keeping up with you when you needed a friend When you needed someone to pray with, someone to get advice from. I realized that I had lost touch with Dave at the very time that he needed me the most. And I pray that none of you will do that. But that you will fulfill the question that God will ask you in the judgment. And be there for your brother and sister. You know, I was flying over on the plane with my girlfriend Carrie. And have any of you ever had a time where everyone in the plane is trying to make you very uncomfortable? Has anyone ever had that situation? Like the person in front of you, behind you, next to you, everything like that? It started off like this. We got on and we had some luggage. And I actually had to go to the bin behind us. You ever had to do that where there's not enough room in your bin so you've got to go to some other bin like behind or preferably in front of you? And I'm putting all the stuff away. I just finished putting Carrie's guitar next to my suitcase. And I come back and there's this big bag right in my seat. And I'm like, oh. And it's this this guy says something. He says, you know, that bag can't fit under my seat. So I'm putting it under your seat. Okay. And, uh, you know, God bless you, Carrie. Carrie was trying to be so sweet about it. And she would have taken it under her seat like that. But she already had a bag under her seat. And I was thinking to myself, I even said it kind of to give this guy a hint. Carrie, is this your bag? And he's like, no, no, that's my bag. But, but it doesn't fit under my seat. So I, I hope it's okay I put it there. I feel like saying, dude, it's your bag. You know, your bag, your seat? My bag, my seat? No, right? Isn't that the way? No? And you know, Carrie, praise the Lord, and I thank you for your advice. I, I should not have done that because I obviously communicated to him that I'd prefer to not have it under my seat because eventually he said, oh, well, there's a seat up there in front in the row ahead. Maybe we can put it in that seat. And he kind of waits there. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to ask him to put your bag in their seat. I mean, that's like doing the same thing you did to me. But I didn't say that. I just said, (laughs) and I handed him his bag. So he asked him, hey, can we put that seat in front of your seat? And thankfully, there was no one in the middle seat up in front of us. So they let him put the seat down. 
But then it didn't end there. Now, you know those little buttons on the side where you can like push the button and then what can you do? You can lean back, right? You're not supposed to do that when they serve what? Drink or food. But I had this guy all the way back and I'm sitting here sipping my ginger ale like this. And I'm like, dude, I mean, you're drinking your drink like this, (laughs) you know? And so I'm like, well, I didn't say anything and I thought, well, maybe I'll just lean back. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to lean back right away until we were all done with what? The drinks, right? That's normal airplane etiquette, right? So we're all done and I go to lean back and I lean back like a centimeter goes. And I look back and there's this guy on his laptop. And he's got the tray table not only down, but pulled all the way out and kind of locked on the armrest there. And I'm just like thinking to myself, dude, I can't even move my chair back. I didn't say anything. I just kind of went, mm, and then you go, mm, a little further, right? And I heard him kind of say, whoa. And then finally God got to me. He's like, Tim, you know, the guy that put his bag under your seat, you will never be able to witness to now. Do you know that? That guy behind you, probably not either. But why don't you try? And I turned back to the guy behind me. I said, you know, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't cramp you there when I leaned my seat back. And he was very understanding. And we started talking. He's like, you know, they don't make these seats large enough anyway. But that's what it's about right there. And I believe that God placed me in that situation where the person in front of me, behind me, and beside me, except for Carrie, was just cranking it up. The only thing I didn't have is one of those kids where you just really want to give them Benadryl during the flight. Oh, I didn't have one of those, thankfully. Or maybe Valium. But God allowed me to see my misshapen character. By placing me that in that situation. To see that I did not turn the other cheek. That I, when I was sued to take away my coat, I didn't give my cloak. When someone forced me to carry their bag one mile, I didn't want to carry it for takeoff. And I know Carrie would have just smoothed things over. But to give you an illustration on how those types of situations should be handled, I'll give you a story about Carrie. It's a good one. Don't worry, Carrie. I was at Carrie's place at Union, actually where I met Rila. And I asked her, I said, hey, can I check my email on your computer? She's like, sure, it's right over there. So I get on the computer and I start going, oh, it's, here's a letter. Oh, it's to your grandma. And I start reading it and reading it. And Carrie, so patiently, she waits till her roommate is not in the room and is out. And she comes over to me, this big smile. And she says, I don't mind if you read it. I just appreciate if you ask me first. (laughs) And I didn't even get it at the time. About five minutes went by and I said, wow, I was just rebuked. (laughs) And I was 100% wrong. There's no question. 100% wrong. But she did it in a way that was so Christ-like and yet had healthy boundaries. Did you notice that? 
we can be kind and patient with one another and communicate love while still having healthy boundaries. And I failed to do that yesterday on the plane with just perfect strangers. And I want to thank you, Carrie, because you encouraged me to be a better Christian by your example. But I pray that through those failures of mine, you can see why God can get away with just asking you one question. You know, Matt had a question about that homeless guy, about why nobody was willing to stop and help him. How many of you were here the last time I spoke at Advent Hope? Do you remember the very last point at the end of the sermon? It was kind of something that I had been thinking about for a while. Is it, if you understand why God loves you, it gives you a motive to love who? Someone else. Because why should you love someone else? Does anyone remember why? It's the same reason. Because they are what? They're yours. That's right. Turn to John chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. John chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Here's the answer, Matt, to the reason why the people didn't stop to help that guy. John chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But he that is what? A hireling and not the shepherd. Here's the key. Whose own what? The sheep are not. Sees the wolf coming and what? He leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees. Why? Why doesn't he do the right thing? Because he's a hireling. And doesn't care about the sheep. The reason he doesn't care about the sheep is he does not have ownership. But if you remember what I shared in Advent Hope in January, you will have ownership over every single human being you see. And you can love them because they're yours. Because they belong to you. They are a part of you. And believe me, if I walked out of that church... And I saw my sister with her hair messed up, all dirty and homeless. What do you think I would have done? I would have taken her right home with me, cleaned her up, took care of her, said, Diana, what's going on? But that young man who Matt helped was just as much your brother and your sister as your blood relative. Because they belong to God. Because that's what matters to God is the people When you understand why God loves you, you'll understand why you should love someone else. And you'll also understand why that's the only question in the judgment, how you treat people around you. I'm going to share with you a text in 1 John, chapter 4, verse 20. And this is the reason why God can get away with asking only one question. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 20. 1 John, chapter 4, 
and verse 20. If a man say, I love God, all of us say that here in this room, but does not love his brother, he is a liar. For he that does not love his brother, whom he has what? He's seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? I'm going to tell you right now, your standing with God at this moment is directly proportional to the way you treat the least person in your life. I'm going to repeat that. Your standing with God right now, whether you are saved or lost, is directly related to how you treat the worst person in your life right now. And that might be a family member. That might be that relative that when you have those reunions, you kind of avoid that person. You know, don't get eye contact. They come down one way and you kind of shift over to the other side of the room. That friend you don't call anymore. That person you just can't be nice to. The person you turn away from when they need help. And I can tell you that this is difficult to hear. But I actually shared this with Dave just this morning. I said, Dave, fill in this blank. There can be no more conclusive evidence that we possess the spirit of Satan than blank. What do you think it is? I challenge you to look it up. It's in Desire of Ages, page 478. There can be no more conclusive evidence that we possess the spirit of Satan than the disposition to hurt or destroy those who do not appreciate our work or who think contrary to our ideas. How many people do you know in your church who try to undermine others who don't agree with them on a certain theological point? Who try to hurt their influence or maybe call them a name? Ultra, they're ultra conservative or they're ultra liberal or whatever. There is no more conclusive evidence that you possess Satan's spirit. That when you are trying to hurt or destroy someone who disagrees with your ideas. That's powerful. Powerful. Look that quote up. Pray about it. Here's the passage at the end of the chapter where I took all these quotes from, pretty much. Desire of Ages, 641. The chapter is the least of these, my brethren. And this is why God only needs to ask you one question. Love to man is the earthward manifestation of the love of God. It was to implant this love to make us children of one family that the king of glory became one with us. And when his parting words are fulfilled, love one another as I have loved you. Listen to this. When we love the world as he has loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. We are fitted for heaven, for we have heaven in our hearts. Isn't that powerful? When we do what? When we share the three angels message with everybody. When we get the 2300 days down pat. 
It says when we love who? The world. As he has loved it. Then for us, his mission is accomplished. Do you realize that? Jesus is done with you. He doesn't need to do any more. When you can love people the way he loved them. But we've missed it. We've totally missed it. And we don't understand that God's only going to ask you one question in the judgment. How did you treat this person who was marginalized, who was in jail, who was that homeless person? I was alone. You never called me. I was outcast. You never invited me home. Jesus is only going to ask you one question. When we love the world as he has loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. We're ready for heaven. That's a heavy statement. Do you realize that? You're ready for translation. Because God knows exactly how you're going to treat him is how you treat the least person here on earth. The reason why he doesn't have to ask you about the Sabbath or all these other things is because when he knows that the love of Christ is in your heart as demonstrated by how you treat someone else, when he says the Sabbath, yes. Dress reform, yes. Diet reform, yes. 2,300 days, yes. Holy Spirit, yes. Trinity, Bible, everything. He knows what you're going to say. He doesn't need to ask you all those questions. But if the answer to the first question is no, he knows you will fail every other question because you've missed the point. You haven't seen Jesus in the least of these, his brethren. Do you remember what the first passage I shared was from the Bible? Who remembers? You do remember the first thing, do you? Be ye therefore what? Perfect. As your Father in heaven is perfect. Did you know in the Bible there's often what we call sister passages? Do you know what a sister passage is? It's basically where something is repeated in one of the Gospels that's given in a previous Gospel. Like many of the parables are repeated, right? The parable of the sower, right? The parable of the talents is repeated. And they use slight variations, right? So you get a little better understanding of what the parable means when you read both of them, correct? Did you know there's a sister passage for this verse? Matthew 5, 48 finds its sister an explanation in Luke 6, 36. It says, be ye therefore, what? Merciful. As your Father in heaven is merciful. That's what it means to be perfect. As God is perfect. It's to be merciful to the people around you. Friends, there's no such thing as a mean Christian. I can tell you that right now. Because it is contrary to the very essence of what Christianity is. Do you want to know what God's going to ask you? Very simple. He's going to want to know how you treated the people around you at the end of time. Because that is going to show him 
who you really are. That is going to show him how you're going to treat him. And I just pray that you will learn from the mistakes that I shared with you. And that you would look into the eyes of every human being. And remember that it's Jesus looking back at you. And remember that only God can give you that love, that pure love for someone as he has given to you. And believe me, if you remember that, if you can love the world as Jesus Christ has loved it, (laughs) Jesus is done with his work for you. Because you already have heaven right here. That's what heaven's going to be about. Is the people. Be merciful. As your father in heaven is merciful. Let's kneel for prayer. Loving father in heaven. Loving Father in heaven. We see now that the only question you will ask us in the judgment is how we treated the people around us. And that's it. Because, Lord, that gives you all the information you need. That will determine if we are going to be safe to bring into heaven or if we would start the rebellion all over again. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts, that you would help us to see why you love us, because we're yours. And when we understand that truth, we will look at the eyes of every human being and realize that we are all part of the great web of humanity, that we are brothers to sinners as well as to saints, that they belong to us, that they are a part of us. And that we would hold on to them and serve them and love them as aggressively and tenaciously as you do to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for breaking my heart, for using Carrie and others to show me what it means to be a Christian. And that means to love the people around me. Help us to do that as you did it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Creator's Call Broadcasting Network in partnership with Restoration Ministry. For the rest of this series and for more media like it, please visit their websites at www.creatorscall.org or www.restorationministry.net.